Hello once again, No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. I'm excited to share with you a new guest, Andrew Molinsky, and some of you may have already become very familiar with him and his work that he has done as an author. He's written for um, Harvard Business Review, very experienced on global dexterity, what does that mean? And his new book is Reach, and we are actually going to talk a bit about that. But one of the things that I found very interesting about Andy and the work that he does is his focus on really that virtual teams, diversity, high impact, how do we work together, and how do we work together in changing times when really and truly we need to be in a new environment, and how do we personally stretch and grow? And I know that the listeners of this podcast are interested both personally and professionally on growing and reaching their goals, which does require stretch. So, Andrew, what would you add to that very brief introduction about yourself that you think would help folks to know about you? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm happy to be here with everybody. Um, yeah, so so I kind of live uh, two, 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 two parallel lives. I'm a professor uh, at Brandeis University in, in Boston in psychology and business. So I'm in the business school in the psychology department. So I've got an academic background. But as, as you mentioned, I also write a lot for Harvard Business Review. I've written two books, Global Dexterity and Reach. And I also do a lot of consulting and training in organizations. So um, I, I guess I combine the academic with the, with, with, the, with the super practical. What types of organizations do you typically work with? All sorts, really. Um, you know, all sorts of organizations, um, all different industries, lots of large organizations, you know, Fortune 500 organizations, but also some smaller ones, too. And, and, and it actually um, it spans the gamut. There's some organizations that ask me to help them with uh, managing global teams, others um, helping them, helping individuals sort of grow and learn and stretch and develop. For instance, a lot of organizations tap people as high potentials, but um, in order to become, to sort of realize your your potential really as a high potential, you need to learn to step outside your comfort zone. Um, and so people uh, have been brought in in companies to deliver training programs on helping their young professionals and also high potentials who are usually a little bit older, learn to step outside their comfort zones. Lots of keynotes, all sorts of things. I'm going to um, ask you to do some explanation of words so that when folks are listening to this, they can say, is that me? Do I understand what Andrew's talking about? So when you say high potential, is that high potential to perform a task or function within an organization, or is that high potential for development or possibly even something different? Well, I, I guess I guess that it's a term that a lot of companies use to sort of tap specific people in their organization that they believe have leadership potential early on and give them sort of a special set of experiences and opportunities to try to realize that potential. But I mean, the reality is that I think... I, I, I think all of us have the potential to be high potential, right? So I don't want I don't want anyone listening to think, "Gosh, am I not high potential?" Uh, it's just a term that I that that a lot of companies tend to use. Okay, well that's great. It sounds like you could be considered high potential at many different stages along your path. Absolutely, yeah. I think that I mean, the, my work is predicated on the fact that you know there's there's 
anyone can learn to step outside their comfort zone. Um, and it, what, what, what you need to do is you need to understand what the challenges are, what your quote unquote pain points are, what the roadblocks are, you know, and develop a solid plan for addressing them. And that's what I really try to do in my work, give people the, 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 the courage, uh, the tools, uh, the frameworks that they need to be able to realize their own potential. Excellent. Well, let's dive in on that a bit more. I do want to take this on parallel things since you said that you work, you know, you've done global work with large organizations and then with organizations perhaps more granularly as well as all of your keynote. And when I was reading and reviewing your information, one of the questions that I wanted to know is how do you, in the context of your work and as a professor, what do you include when you're talking about diverse? Mm, it's a good question. Well, diverse, I think, I think there are a lot of different dimensions of diversity. Um, I often work with people who have natural, um, sorry, national cultural diversity. So I work with a lot of, you know, people from China, from India, from various European countries, South American, Latin American countries, Middle Eastern, all sorts of people from different sort of I would say national diversity, but that's just one dimension of diversity. You've got, you've got um, generational diversity. In other words, you know, millennials and some of the older folks like me, um, you've got uh, gender diversity, you've got um, sexual orientation, you've got um, functional diversity, which is really often an underemphasized element of diversity. You've got a team of people from R&D and sales and marketing, and they might not all speak the same language or have the same assumptions. You can have language diversity. I mean, it can go on and on and on. Right. So so my typical focus of my work, because I wrote a book called Global Dexterity and I work with individuals and companies stepping outside their cultural comfort zone. So national cultural diversity is, is sort of an, is an angle I'm often focused on. I like that you have all those many different dimensions of diversity, because when you're working with folks, when I'm working with folks, whether I'm like in a leadership role or part of a team, it's interesting to see how those different layers of diversity all come into play. So while I may be the same as you nationally, I may, my gender may change my socioeconomic place and my function within the organization. I'm wondering how that weaves in to you know, you think about working with an individual about their challenges and pain points. Do you use diversity as one of the filters or understanding points when you're working with folks, or is that something separate? I'm typically, what I typically focus on is, um, is specific situations where, the, you know, in a situation might be uh, making small talk with someone you don't know, networking, going to a networking event, pitching and promoting yourself when that's uncomfortable for you, or giving a speech, or speaking up at a meeting, or giving feedback. I always focus on specific situations. What I like to do is I like to try to understand, you know, where there's a gap 
between how you know you need to act to be effective and successful in that situation and what's sort of natural and comfortable and accustomed for you. And that might be because of your national cultural background. It could also be because of your personality or whatever it might be. But I really like to focus on specific situations as opposed to just sort of generally in the workplace because I think you get much more traction and leverage out of specific situations. And frankly, that's what really matters. That's, That's where people struggle. Agreed. So now I'm going to ask you to get specific. You may have to make this up like a blend of people you've worked with or examples, but what is one or maybe a few of the most common um, kind of of those gaps, if you will, between when you're looking at folks and I will give you, I'll make up somebody. This would be someone who's probably a woman between 30 and 50 who is wanting to go out and either leave her current position, which may be very secure in terms of a regular paycheck, but to start her own business or um, encourage others to do that, you know, create an organization together. What are the typical barriers that you see come up for folks if there are a handful of typical ones? I think uh, assertiveness is a big one. Uh, Speaking up for oneself, you know, asserting your needs, I think another one is pitching and promoting yourself uh, and you're in, if it's a small business in your business, or it could be a large business, but sort of speaking positively about yourself, putting yourself front and center. I think that's, that's, that's a big one. I think another big one is building relationships and making small talk. Now for some people, it's actually quite easy, but there are many, many people who find it very difficult to walk up to someone that they don't know, whether it's within their organization, whether it's outside their organization, trying to build a network. That for a lot of people is very, very hard. And then when you take those three things together, let's say making small talk, being assertive, speaking up, and that could be at a meeting, it could be in a lot of contexts, and networking. I mean, that's that, th- those, are, those are three that, in, in public speaking, by the way, is another one uh, that's, that's extremely common for, for, for really anyone. Those are the ones that I see, see the most. Um, uh, and, and frankly, to be honest, you, you portrayed a, a, a portrait of a, a woman, I think you said between 30 and 50 years old and, and, and so on. But, but I, those, those four things that I just mentioned, those are things that people struggle with across the age spectrum and across the gender spectrum, frankly. So let's play that out a little bit and say I'm that woman but I'm in this place, I've got my business plan, I've done all the back end stuff that I can do to be ready to go, but now I've got to get out there, right? And this is where the the rubber hits the road, so to speak, where I need to go out and talk about myself positively yep. and promote. Are there specific tips that you um, offer? Yeah, so 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 tip one is, is in, and I talk about this in my book and my work, is I, I try to help people understand what their pain points are. Why is it hard? And so what I've found in my work, and I should tell you that my book, Reach, uh, that came out last year, I, I spoke with all sorts of people. I spoke with managers and entrepreneurs, doctors, police officers, therapists, actors, students, priests, rabbis, all, even a goat farmer, all sorts of people in all sorts of situations. And, f- and what I found is that it all boiled down to five core pain points or challenges. Now, you're not going to necessarily, that person we're talking about isn't necessarily going to experience every one of these challenges. But just to give you a sense, is the pain point, is the challenge, I call it a psychological roadblock, is it authenticity? 
do, do you worry that you won't feel like yourself? That's, that's a big challenge for a lot of people, authenticity, when stepping outside your comfort zone. Another one's likability. What if people won't like this version of me? If I'm a bit more assertive, if I toot my own horn a little bit, what if, what if people think I'm a jerk? What if people think I'm, I'm just, you know, completely conceited, right? And, and remember, this is outside your comfort zone, and you can really worry how, how people will, will think of you. So you've got authenticity, you've got likability. A third one's competence. What if I'm bad at this? What if, you know, it's outside my comfort zone? What if, what if I'm really bad at this? And, and furthermore, what if people can see that? Right. So the fourth one that I find is resentment. Uh, Sometimes people feel resentful that this is something they need to do. Like why, you know, let's say talk about networking or making small talk, you know, why can't people might feel inside, you know, why can't my qualifications just stand on their own? I'm a darn good, whatever it might be, engineer. You know, why does my ability to get an assignment, to get a job, to get noticed, depend on my ability to make small talk about last night's football game? Like, why should that matter? People can feel really resentful about that. Um, so, so those are some of them. Those are examples of pain points. And so my very first suggestion, and that I outline in my book, and I give some really practical tools, and I, of course, use these in my consulting and training as well, is really understand where where your challenge is. When you plan with somebody, are you giving them small baby steps? Do they design the plan? Is there a particular path that is typical to go down to get over an obstacle or roadblock? Absolutely. So, so I, I, I offer three um, core sort of strategies, but in the end, yes, it is baby steps, right? And, and, and the most important thing is to try because I think a lot of us avoid, and I talk about this in my book as well, we're, we're, we're very good at avoiding situations outside our comfort zones, but we'll never grow and learn and develop and also realize that this, is, this might not actually be as hard as we think unless we give it a shot. And so my strategies that I help people with are really strategies that are oriented towards giving it a shot. And so the first one is, is what I call conviction, finding your source of conviction and, you know, kind of like a deep sense of purpose. Like, why does this matter for you? And that's a very subjective answer. But why does it matter? Like, is this, is this the right thing to do for you? Is this the necessary thing? Is this, will this help you help others? Will it make you feel good about yourself? Is it, do you want to be a role model for people you care about, like your kids, and that's why it's important for you to do this? You know, wherever it comes from, whether it's personal or professional or both, find, embrace that source of conviction because that becomes the wind at your back when, when sort of every bone in your body is saying, no, 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 this is scary, right? The second is what I call customization customization, you know, we live in an era of customization, right? Personalizing, putting our own little spin or tweak on something. And I have found this to be an incredibly powerful tool for people when stepping outside their comfort zones. So for example, you might, you might tweak your body language. You might script out what you want to say. You might bring a prop. By prop, I mean like you might wear a special power suit that only you know is going to give you a little bit of courage. I actually, I'll, I'll share with you something. I, I used to be afraid of public speaking uh, early in my career. I used to wear a ring, a special ring, every single time I, I went to, to, to give a speech. And I had to do it a lot, especially as a young professor. And, and that ring was actually, there was a stone in it that my great uncle had found in the, in the beaches of the South Pacific in World War II. He was in the Navy. And it always sort of represented courage to me. And every time I wore that ring, I thought to myself, man, if he could do that, I can do this. 
that's an example. There, there are a lot of ways you can customize. Sometimes it's through the, the timing. Sometimes it's, um, I don't know, you can customize the context even. So when I give public speeches now, for example, I always go early. I do keynotes, you know, large audiences, hundreds of people. I'll, and, and I used to be afraid. Now I actually really like it. I'll go early. I'll meet a few people. And then all of a sudden I've customized because that's not, it's no longer giving a speech in front of a huge intimidating group of people I don't know. Now I'm giving a speech to a couple of people I do know a little bit, right? So I've customized the situation. The point is, is you have more power than you think to customize and make something your own. So that that ends up being very, very powerful. So, I mean, those are a couple of examples of the tools that I use to help people to nudge them to step outside their comfort zone. I love that. And, and the fact that you're able to relate the change in your own self from, you know, using the ring as an example. I recall early when I had to learn speaking, this woman who is also a friend and a local news anchor, she said, no, just hold a pen in your hand. She said, it'll ground you. Just hold it. It doesn't have to be visible. But it was that same kind of thing to remember what you were doing. Pause redirect if it wasn't where you wanted to go or if you forgot something but it it was that permission and then each time you do it it starts to become more comfortable and ultimately fun which is hard to believe when you're at the front end of it thinking this will never be fun so when people take these baby steps and they try and they're not avoiding i really love that that just that try get clear on your conviction the customization piece and your own example So, Andrew, I'm wondering, could you share with us um, some of the other benefits that you've seen? You talked about the benefit to yourself from the getting more comfortable, and now you're able to speak in front of large groups of people and actually look forward to it. In the folks that you've worked with, what are some of the other benefits you've seen played out, either specific to the barrier that they faced or some even unplanned benefits that came as a result of their stepping outside their comfort zone and reaching? Well, it's a great question. I mean, and, and, you know, I I think that when people are able to do something that they never thought they could do, and 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 that doesn't doesn't mean, you know, climbing Mount Everest. I mean, for some people, making small talk with someone they don't know is something they never thought they could do. It it can be a um, life-changing experience in some ways. You know, uh, people can start to develop a sense of uh, confidence that they didn't have before, which might make them feel more capable of taking these little risks, sort of having this everyday courage in other situations. And it can sort of transform their uh, outlook, their professional outlook, and sometimes personal outlook too. It's it's quite remarkable when people are able to do this. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't snap your fingers. It's it's oftentimes baby steps. And But if you can sort of take a snapshot of where you are at time one and do some of this activity and then look at time two and see where you've come, people often realize that they're they're more effective and successful in situations that they really either avoided or were quite uncomfortable in. And so, you know, that brings them professional success and also sort of personal fulfillment as well. Have you seen people just all of a sudden after they've realized they've got more control or power or success than they thought just all of a sudden go, if I can do that, I'm going in this whole new direction now? 
I have seen that. I mean, you know, the the other thing though too is that I should say that it's that I don't want people to 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 come away thinking, gosh, I have to step outside my comfort zone in every possible situation, you know, and in and, and become a totally different person. Because I don't think that's that's true either. Um my view is that you pick your spots. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, your stock and bond portfolio if you have a four oh one K, you know, you've got like, you know, you've got a, a range diversity, right? And, and you can have the sort of same type of range and diversity in the situations that you encounter in your sort of everyday work life. So there's some situations where, by the way, you probably don't even have to step outside your comfort zone because you're already in it. It's easy for you. But then there are other situations that are more of a stretch. And maybe you're going to choose situation A that's more of a stretch right now. And you're going to leave situation B alone because you're not quite ready for that. So the point is, is that you don't want to kind of go all in and step outside your comfort zone in every possible situation, unless you're, you know, unless you're a real adrenaline junkie or just, you know, <laughs> really, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think that's for most people. Um, so, so, so that's, that's something that I want to emphasize, but if you can sort of strategically pick some important, meaningful situations that are going to be high leverage situations for you and start to step outside your comfort zone on those, there is a carryover effect that you'll see. And I think it's pretty positive. When you were talking about, you know, your five steps that you, um, have people consider when they think about why something's hard and, um, what they're concerns about that might be, you know, so the authenticity, likability, competence. I, it was interesting for me when you hit the word resentment. And then you talked a little bit when you talked about that it's a personal resentment about why do I have to do this? That's a very interesting point of view for someone to have because it it's often not verbally expressed that way. You know, you can just feel the resistance to doing something, but it's not saying it's like, why do I have to do this? Why am I being challenged? When that comes up for folks, how do you work with that to push through that? Or maybe not even push through it, but to shed light on it so that somebody can move through it? Yeah, um, it's, it's a good question. Um, I see that both when I, when I work with people who are sort of native U.S. born folks, like in the situations we talked about, let's say someone who's introverted and might struggle making small talk and they think to themselves, you know, on some level they're resentful that, that this matters. You also see it cross-culturally when people have to step outside their cultural comfort zone. They also can, can feel resentment. You know, when in Rome, act like the Romans. We've all heard that. But, but you know, people deep down might, might think to themselves, maybe it's subconsciously, as you sort of indicated, why do I have to do this, right? They, they, they get it intellectually, but emotionally, they're, they're resentful. Um, I think it comes back to what we talked about before, conviction. Um, I think that's really important, trying to understand, yes, y yes, I'm resentful that I have to do this, but this is something that I really care about. These, these outcomes, these goals are really important to me. Um, maybe, I, maybe I realize I need to stretch my, my, um, my skill set even, and that that's critical. You know, I think cross-culturally, sometimes you see people use the strategy of stepping into the shoes of the other person to try to understand their worldview. And then, like, for example, a lot of foreigners uh, to the U.S. find American-style small talk to be very superficial. Like people going, hey, how are you? And, and, and especially when you come from a culture where you just would never do that, especially with a stranger uh, or someone you don't know well. And that level of enthusiasm that you're expected to, sh 
though, like I just gave you a sense of, in some cultures, that's just seen as is ridiculous, really. And, and they can feel not only inauthentic, not only incompetent, not only worrying about their likability, but also resentful, like, this is what it takes for me to kind of get by here. But but once they can start, start to step into the shoes of, of the U.S. and see that, you know what, it's not superficial necessarily from the perspective of an American. It might sound it from your worldview if you come from a culture where you, this was just not how you do things. But if you can sort of step into the shoes of an American and see, you know what, it's not necessarily superficial. It's just the way things are done here. Then you start to feel that feeling of resentment melts away a little bit. And then combined with a sense of conviction about why this matters for you to kind of give it a go, you start to focus more there. Okay, I'm really turning left on you here because something you said piqued my interest. There are system resentments, right? Like why do we have to change to maybe it's incorporate people who aren't maybe native born or policies or practices. And when you work with an organization and there's that level of resistance, where do you start? to break through those um, barriers? Do you start at the top? Is it organization-wide? Because you talk about really having to have the conviction and the why, but where does that live? I think it starts at the top, and I, I think it, you know, it starts at the top, and that's where the tone and atmosphere is, is initially created, and then it sort of um, permeates throughout the organization into hiring decisions, into policies and practices and norms and so on and so forth, right? But I think that it starts at the top. So, you know, in terms of creating creating a culture, because people are going to ultimately self-select into the culture and self-select out of the culture. And so that because people self-select into the culture and then leave the culture if there's no fit, over time, they're, they're sort of that, that, that culture becomes stronger and stronger. And so I think at the top is where is that's your leverage point. And when you're working with an organization, you say, we're going to change the culture. I mean, it may not be that exact statement, but something needs to change. We're going to be different than we are today. What is the change cycle on that in terms of length of time? And I'm asking this from the point of view for folks who ask me, like, how long is this going to take? And without being flip, it takes as long as it takes. But since you've worked through many cycles of this with different sizes of organizations, what would you say to how long does something like that take? I think is <laughs> I, I hate to I hate to sort of equivocate on this, but I, th I think that it's uh, I think it takes as long as it takes. I, I think that it, it it it's a it's a multifaceted process at multiple levels, as we talked about, right? Multiple ways, multiple levels from from rhetoric to reality. In other words, what you say, but also what you do, because those two things need to be in sync. And I think it requires corrections over time and so on and so forth. It's, it's a very hard question to answer. You know, it's just sort of like the question on the individual level. How long does it take to start to feel comfortable doing something that's outside your comfort zone, sort of stepping outside your own culture? Well, it takes as long as it takes. I think you can make great strides, but I think that you really have to, in, in, same thing with an organization. Yeah, an organization needs to find its its source of conviction, why this matters to us, right? Is this, is this important because it's linked to our core values and we just haven't been living those core values? Does it, is it important because, because, it's gonna, because the customers we serve care about this? Why? Maybe it's multiple reasons. And I think, it's, I think the analogy is very similar. I think the takeaway from that is, you know, if we give up just because something's hard or difficult, there's always that fear for me, like if I quit just because it's difficult, what if I just lasted one more hour and that was the breakthrough? 
It's yeah. hard though, right? It's hard. It because, is hard work. You know, it's like, like there's also the idea of sunk costs, right? Where the f- sort of, you know, in, in the escalation of commitment, there, there's a whole school of thought that you want to sort of cut bait and you don't want to throw good money after bad and you don't want to keep committing to something that's a failed course of action. So it is a, it's a, at the end, it can be a judgment call, right? When to persist and when to cut bait and when to dedicate your time, resources, and energy towards something else. I always feel that these decisions need to be value-driven. That's where the ultimate sort of say comes from. Who are we? Um, who do we want to be? What, what matters to us? I think that's a great way to wrap our conversation is the values-driven point. I want to ask you one final question about yourself, though. What are your personal um, success habits that allow you to do all of what you are doing and stay focused and true to your own values? It's hmm, a good question. I, you know, I, I always think for myself, I'm, I'm pretty good at knowing when I'm knowing when I'm productive and knowing when I'm not. And so, for example, if I notice that I, I wake up in the morning and I'm not productive, I'll do I will I'll pretty quickly do something else. I might go take a walk with my dog. I might work out. I might, I don't know, do busy work. I might do whatever. I might clean the kitchen. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I work from home a lot. Or, I'll, or if I'm at work, I might, you know, take a walk around, around where I am or outside or something. And then I'll come back and then I'll dedicate myself to what I'm doing. And conversely, when I find myself really on a roll and productive and I had artificially set some limit, let's say there was a, a you know, a time at three o'clock that I had to do something, let's say, or even sometimes a meeting, I might cancel that meeting because I need to leverage my productivity if it's not an essential meeting. So, so, so knowing when you're productive, knowing when you're not and really having that meta level awareness, I think to me, that's like one of the, the best things that I, I personally do uh, in terms of staying productive. That's a great tip. I know you've got two books. I think Reach is um, going to be my next purchase, actually, instead of just looking over it and scanning. And I know you have some downloads from your website. So what is the best way for folks to reach out, learn more about you, more about your work, and follow what you're doing? Yeah, great. I, and I love to have people follow. I have a I have a periodic newsletter I send out. I have one coming out on Tuesday. I just wrote <laughs> uh, www.andymolinsky.com. That's www.andymolinsky.com. Uh, um, and maybe, in, I don't know if you have show notes, but maybe you'd, you'd put the link there. And that's really the hub. That's where I've got all sorts of stuff from free downloads to lots of videos and and. and as you mentioned, I write for the Harvard Business Review and also Inc.com and Psychology Today. I've got tons of free stuff on there. I basically tried to make the website something that I would want to visit. So that's really the hub, and we can connect in all sorts of ways from there. Great. And, yes, we will put the link in the show notes and um, promote it when we go live on the podcast as well. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Well, it's truly been my pleasure. So that's it for this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, please hop on over to iTunes or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. This helps us get the word out to more people just like you who want to live a no-labels, no-limits life. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.